United Nations Climate Change Conferences, often referred to as COP meetings, short for Conference of the Parties, are formal annual meetings where issues related to climate change are discussed by attendees. These meetings have been occurring at their yearly cadence since 1995, though the November 2020 meeting was put off till November 2021 because of the COVID pandemic that almost entirely dominated international attention and governmental efforts that year. COP meetings are held in different locations around the world, with host countries chosen from among those that offer to provide the requisite facilities and services for all attendees, which can represent a who's who of governments and businesses. So this isn't quite an Olympics level of commitment and expense, but it is quite an undertaking, as those host countries need to provide security for all those leaders, translation services for six different working languages, and they need to help engage stakeholders, ranging from diplomats to the CEOs of the world's biggest companies, flogging support for the meetings themselves, but also the core themes of each meeting, which vary from year to year. These themes are important, as they've historically led to some of the most vital agreements we've seen between nations and other stakeholders, including the Kyoto Protocol, which was an early 1990s-era emissions reduction agreement between wealthy nations, and the Paris Agreement, which expounded upon the same general concept, though with much more aggressive targets and a wider scope of things the signatories had to take into consideration. On November 30th through December 12th of 2023, signatory nations and other entities will meet for the COP28 meeting, this time hosted in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. This is interesting for several reasons, but the most prominent, and the reason this choice was so obviously controversial, is that the UAE, like many other nations in the region, is a huge fossil fuel producer, about 30% of its total economy is reliant on oil and gas exports. What's more, the president-designate for COP28, the person who was put in charge of running things, but also getting those aforementioned stakeholders in line, making commitments, showing support, doing all the things they need to do to make this a successful COP meeting with something to show for their efforts, is Dr. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, the Minister of Industry and Advanced Technology for the UAE, the Chairman of the Abu Dhabi Future Energy Company, also called Mazdar, and the head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the first CEO to serve as a COP president, and, well, definitely the first oil company CEO to head up a meeting meant to help the world deal with climate change that is being amplified by the products his company is producing and selling. What I'd like to talk about today is COP28, and what we might expect to emerge from this very unusual, but also quite significant get-together. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. Learn more about Let's Know Things, subscribe to receive free email updates, and or become a supporter to receive monthly bonus episodes at letsknowthings.com. Al-Jaber's appointment as the COP president for this year's meeting was a controversial choice, to say the least. 
Dubai being selected as the host city was one thing, but an oil executive running the show. This reeked, to some commentators and analysts at least, as a sort of organizational capture. The United Nations, either overrun by financial interests to the point that those interests were able to insert themselves even into this increasingly vital annual summit, or maybe the organization overcome by a naive sort of optimistic earnestness, wanting to get everyone involved, including those in some ways most responsible for the climate-related issues we face, to the point that the reins were ultimately handed over to one of those people to do with as he and his ilk please. Now, it's unclear which of these or other possibilities explain this, again, quite controversial choice of host city and president, but there has already been some more obvious, scandalous behavior arising from this meeting, beyond the jarring dissonance of having oil people run a climate change-focused meeting. Back in June of 2023, it was reported that the UAE's state oil company Adnoc was able to read emails to and from the official COP28 summit office, despite claims that the latter's email system was kept separate from the former's. The concern was that this state oil company, which would seem to have immense financial interest in slowing or stopping the transition from fossil fuels to renewables, as the longer they can keep legally and profitably pumping and selling, the more profit they can wring from their existing assets, they could see what was being said by and to the folks behind this climate summit, which is ostensibly at least meant to help speed up that transition away from fossil fuels. Those concerns were confirmed by The Guardian, and though the COP28 office altered their digital setup after the reporting was done, this added fuel to the concern fire that was already burning because the UAE and Al Jaber were in charge of things. It seemed like they would have every reason in the world to put their thumbs on the scale and nudge the meeting in favor of the fossil fuel industry given the chance, and this email issue seemed to confirm that notion. There have also been concerns that the UAE authorities will weaponize their already widespread digital surveillance apparatus, which is generally used to stifle religious and political freedoms in country, to target COP meeting attendees with the same, tracking their actions and communications with spyware, among other violations. A letter was written to the UN by a bunch of politicians from the EU and US asking the body behind the COP meetings to remove Al Jaber, and a slew of organizations and activists have separately done the same. The counterpoint presented by the UAE and Al Jaber himself, though, alongside supporters of how this meeting is coming together, including, at times at least, the US climate envoy John Kerry and EU climate chief Franz Timmermans, is that alongside his role running a state-owned fossil fuel company, Al Jaber also founded and runs Mazdar, which invests heavily in renewable energy, and which is meant to serve as a foot in the door for the UAE as they attempt to reduce their reliance on fossil fuels. Mazdar has invested in renewable projects in 40 countries so far and have targeted building 100 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity by 2030. Under Al Jaber, Abu Dhabi's national oil company has invested in carbon capture and green hydrogen projects and has been investing in nuclear and solar power as well. None of these efforts compare to the investments that have been made under his leadership in fossil fuel capacity. It's kind of night and day. 
but the argument in his favor is that he is a skilled energy world executive of the traditional sort, and one that is actually making practical moves to transition to renewables. He's not doing it overnight, but he's actually doing something, and that makes him a credible source for usable ideas as to how other companies can do the same, while also putting someone at the reins who knows how to talk to and deal with energy executives many of whom could not care less about investing in renewables. And that means it's possible he might be able to get them to make these sorts of iterative changes as well. He is a choice that doesn't preach to the choir, basically. He is meant to preach to those who are not yet convinced or converted. And this will be a COP meeting with a lot of oil industry higher-ups in attendance, which theoretically at least supports the assertion made by critics that the meeting has been captured, serving as a safe space for fossil fuel industry representatives who want to paint themselves as eco-friendly and thus empowered to play a role in determining how quickly or slowly the transition to renewables occurs. But the counterpoint to this regulatory capture theory is that having true believers at the helm folks who see the oil industry as villains in many cases, having them running things has not historically served to get these oil companies to do anything except deny, 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 and to do what they can do to further entrench themselves in their existing energy source and business models. So maybe this, putting one of their own at the front of the room, and one of them who seems to be comfortable keeping a foot in both worlds, maybe that will help shift their collective stance a bit. Beyond the hubbub over who's hosting the show, there are also a few other interesting things to watch as this year's COP meeting unfolds. The first is that the US and China recently came to a new agreement to dramatically increase the production of renewable energy, tripling global capacity by 2030 in order to reduce their emissions and displace fossil fuels. The U.S. and China's emissions collectively account for something like 38% of the world's total emissions. So anything these countries do in this space is already a big deal. But the last time the U.S. and China landed on this sort of agreement back in 2015, the language they used ended up informing the Paris Agreement that was made real at that year's COP meeting, an agreement meant to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So it could be that this new agreement also feeds into a larger, more intentional and inclusive agreement as well. That said, there's a lot of arguably justified concern that this year's COP, like many previous COP meetings, will be a lot of talk without much or any action. It is easy to make commitments in a context in which one's words will net one's country a lot of goodwill in the press, but a lot more difficult to actually live up to those commitments, as governments around the world have discovered time and time again with climate-related issues. Our newest climate data indicate we'll likely fly right by the 1.5 degrees Celsius average warming milestone this decade much earlier than was previously estimated, and early enough that many experts are now saying that goal, keeping temperature increases below that level, which has become a bit of a rallying cry for environmentalists and other entities shifting to renewable energy in recent years, they say it's probably out of reach. It's still important that we reduce emissions and halt heating as soon as possible, in other words, but the number that we have held up as being an aggressive, optimistic goal that is nonetheless achievable might not be realistically achievable anymore. 
That new report is far from the last word on this, but a seeming inability to live up to climate commitments, combined with ever-bettering data collection and computational resources, has left us with a much higher resolution understanding of how bad the situation really is, and a much steeper mountain to climb if we want to accomplish even the relatively less impressive goals that are still within reach, which makes the whole concept a tougher sell, especially when it seems easier to just throw up one's hands in frustration or disbelief rather than making the sacrifices that might be necessary to get where we ostensibly need to be. And that's the second main interesting thing to be watching here, the impact that better tools and data from those tools, and research done with that better data, will have on these discussions and the overall timber and tone of what people are saying. These new talks are arriving in the wake of some significant new developments in methane tracking capabilities, satellites that allow researchers to pinpoint methane emission hotspots, which in turn tells them which governments are failing to cap emitting wells, or which businesses are. As was the case in Kazakhstan recently, a local mining company allowing methane to flow freely from their infrastructure, causing untold damage that can be relatively inexpensively remedied once the emitting entities know what's happening and the right kind of external pressure is applied to force their hand. Two variables that are increasingly likely to align appropriately because of these new tools and techniques. Satellites capable of providing other sorts of high-resolution data, like where CO2 emissions are the worst, for instance, down to the level of an individual power plant, can also help us figure out where our problems are centralized, but they also allow us to name and shame, with receipts if necessary, to force entities that would otherwise try to deny and sweep this kind of thing under the rug to acknowledge their failure in this regard, making issues that they currently might record as externalities internal, in turn making it more likely that something will be done rather than these issues being ignored and then compounding over time. And third, one of the many commitments countries, especially wealthy countries, have made over the course of previous COP meetings is to provide a bunch of money to less wealthy countries meant to help pay climate-related reparations and for a transition to renewables, helping them bypass the emissions-heavy excesses today's wealthy countries have indulged in. Those already wealthy countries are the source of the vast, vast majority of today's emissions, and the idea is to help not yet wealthy countries scale up and become richer without also creating more emissions as a consequence. A reasonable-sounding ambition, but that kind of pivot is not cheap or easy. The aid many countries have been told they would get as part of this effort has not yet materialized, though. $100 billion was promised by wealthy countries for poorer countries by 2020 to kick things off and to help them move toward renewables and for losses and damages caused by existing climate change impacts. And that was meant to be just the initial round of funding that would eventually lead to trillions a year. Even that initial $100 billion didn't arrive, though. And while you could argue that some other fairly immediate concerns reared their head in 2020 that necessitated the rerouting of those funds toward other pandemic-related issues, this is often touted as an example of just how untrustworthy these wealthier countries and their promises are. Even the initial promise was a lie, so why shouldn't these countries that were lied to pursue whichever path is best for them and their immediate short-term fortunes, whatever the consequences, like those wealthier countries were able to do in previous decades and centuries. 
Those are big questions, but probably the biggest one is whether those attending COP28 will be able to get an actual commitment to phase out fossil fuels on the table and then adopted by those participating. Many nations, including the most powerful and emitting in the world, have been unwilling to do this, consistently adopting weaker language, making smaller pseudo-promises, not quite stepping up to the plate on a firm commitment to that kind of transition. Instead, opting for language that allows wiggle room and doesn't upset any of the existing fossil fuel-related global systems, including existing energy businesses, but also countries like the UAE and the US that are major fossil fuel exporters, not touching their money. Most analysts do not expect that language to arrive at this meeting either, and the general consensus is that we will probably see another relatively iterative step in the right direction across many metrics at COP28. Maybe something based on all that new data with a little more enforcement-related teeth, but likely not a big enough step to close the gap between where we thought we were and where we now realize because of the most up-to-date climate findings we actually are. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs by Jamie Loftus. This book was not really what I expected going into it. I kind of thought it might be a historical treatise on hot dogs or something along those lines. Instead, it's more of a memoir and a bit of a COVID pandemic lockdown memoir. The author, who is very funny, a comedian, I believe, and a good author, documenting a road trip and some relationships that ebbed and flowed during that road trip around the United States during the pandemic to try all different sorts of hot dogs. And you do learn a fair bit about hot dogs and what they are and how they work and the industry behind them, things like that. But it's mostly just a fun travel story written by somebody who tells a good story. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Raw Dog by Jamie Loftus. You can subscribe to receive email updates, find show notes and other such content, and support this show financially, receiving additional bonus episodes as a thank you at letsknowthings.com. Learn more about me and my work at colin.io. Subscribe to my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your pods, or at onesentencenews.com. And say howdy on social media. I'm at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter, and Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.